Hello, and welcome to UX Soup, a podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Chris Schreiner. Diane and Lisa have the podcast off today. For the final episode of 2021, we wanted to take a look back at UX Soup throughout the year. This is our first full year of making this uh, weekly podcast, and uh, we want to thank first everybody for uh, your support, for listening, for your comments and feedback. Uh, it's, been, it's been a really wonderful year for all of us uh, on the podcast. And as with everything in life, uh, there were some, some changes along the way. Of course, the biggest change uh, was Derek Vita moving on to a new adventure earlier on in the year. Uh, UX Soup really wouldn't exist without his creativity, his ideas, and of course, his excellent insights. And we certainly wish him the best in his new adventures. And with one door closing, another one opened, with Diana Franganillo ultimately joining UX Soup, uh, bringing her enthusiasm, energy, and expertise. And we've covered a lot of topics throughout the year. Ones we deal with at SA on a daily basis, like automotive user experience, smart home, personal devices, HMI, healthcare, and other topics that we wanted to cover, like cooking, sport, travel, and others, all to really demonstrate how central user experience is to the design of everything. So for this episode, we've selected a handful of topics, and we're going to start off talking about healthcare. Sadly, COVID is still impacting everyone's lives, uh, but the year started out with a lot of hope that things would open back up with vaccines becoming available. We took a look at the user experience of the vaccine rollout back in episode 23, and here's Derek talking about his parents' experience. The experience is vastly different by state and by region. So recall that much of this is being controlled uh, at the ground level by local departments of health. The United States has 50 states. In the state where I live in, Washington state, there are 39 counties. And each of those counties is dealing with this entirely differently as well. So at least speaking to the experience that I'm familiar with, my parents happen to be in a, a vulnerable segment where they are eligible for the vaccine, but not necessarily initially. In order to determine whether or not they were even eligible to get to begin with, they watched local news reports because they tend to get their news from local television, and then went to a state-powered website where they had to punch in where they live, their age, do they have any of these conditions, uh, and then from that questionnaire, they get a, sorry, you're not eligible, or a congratulations, you're eligible, and then they print off a page that says they're, they're eligible. What's fascinating to me is how it's, it, it, this didn't really land for me initially, it's entirely on the honor system. Like I could go in there and say, I'm 78 years old and I have hypertension. I could get a letter that says, congratulations, you're eligible. And then it would be up to the local drugstore or local pharmacy to turn me away. That kind of fragmentation, of course, doesn't just leave itself to the rollout of vaccines. It's throughout all of healthcare, really. We, of course, see a lot of interoperability issues throughout different healthcare systems and between different healthcare systems. And Lisa explored this with Irina Bolachevsky from the UK's National Health Service 
digital division, NHSX. Here is Arena using a very familiar metaphor for all of us uh, to describe some of the interoperability issues they face in healthcare. Interoperability kind of in, in this context mm-hmm. means that, that different sort of, I guess, products and services are designed to interface together across organization um, product boundaries in a way that's essentially relatively seamless so that, you know it, sh- it just works like you shouldn't have to do a huge amount of manual work to make that work and one of the kind of examples i have is like we actually have a lot of interoperability on the web you know, we, can, mm-hmm. we can all create websites but also um the the way it relates to standards i often explain by talking about email um if i log into gmail for example and create an email to a hotmail user i just put in their email address mm-hmm. and it works yeah i don't get an error message saying i'm sorry this is not a gmail user at least if you were using hotmail you wouldn't get a message saying well someone tried to send you something but you know you need to create an account to be able to get it um or you don't get or you know worse still you wouldn't get anything it just works it's because they use the same protocols and in a technology that's you know very similar, like instant messaging, mm-hmm. we don't have them. You know, WhatsApp doesn't talk to Signal, doesn't talk to Skype, doesn't talk to Telegram, doesn't talk to Facebook Messenger, doesn't talk to Twitter. Yeah, like these things are you know functionally um, very similar, but you have to remember which of your friends is on WhatsApp, yes, and who is on something else in order to be able to message them. That's and a great example. And it's insane. And one other healthcare clip we wanted to play for you today was um, from my interview with Santosh Basuper from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Santosh is heading up a user experience research program looking at equitable healthcare design in the city of Chicago. And he talked to us about some of his early results that he's seen, some of the early stories that he's gotten from this research and here he is with one particularly meaningful one for him it's been an uh, emotional trip so when you when you go to the teenagers and ask them about hey what does healthcare mean to you I, and i'm this this comment by one teenager i'm never gonna forget he says you know what is healthcare for me santosh he's like it's me telling the doctor what I'm feeling and then the doctor telling me about what I'm feeling in a language that I don't understand. That's healthcare. <laughs> and, and so we, we have a long way to go. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's about, it, it's such fundamental factors as trust in the system, trust in the providers. It's about building that camaraderie, building that counseling or, and these are like, people in the community who have seen a lot of trauma and COVID has worsened it, right? Chicago has always had the slow-moving pandemic of violence and drugs and all these other issues. I call them slow-moving pandemics because they have been happening for years and for decades. And just COVID was one of those fast-moving pandemics. So it's like there was already trauma. COVID superimposed more trauma. And so now you're dealing with a society that needs a, a group of people that really needs the infrastructure that that needs to hold them up that needs to provide for their basic healthcare needs and build for their well-being it's not just about addressing the 
health of it, but also the long-term sustenance of the community as a whole, right? So the challenge has been to deal with the understanding that a lot needs to be done. So how do we start building the small Lego bricks so that actually the, the whole Lego toy can be built, right? We need to start at the bricks level. So we are trying to identify those bricks that will help us build the larger solutions. One of the topic areas that we cover a lot at Strategy Analytics is the automotive space and the automotive user experience. And we covered that from several different angles on UX Soup. One of the trends, of course, is around self-driving cars. And we wanted to look at self-driving cars from the through the lens of accessibility, since that's where the story and kind of the pitch for self-driving cars started. Here is Derek talking about some of the research that we've done on accessibility for self-driving cars. This is something that Google talked about 10 years ago with the initial self-driving project, that this could unlock independence for an enormous swath of people who desperately needed these these options. So it's fantastic to see this opportunity uh, get closer and closer to reality. The problem is when we ask folks with sight loss what they most need in a ride hailing or taxi service, a lot of those needs are not currently addressed with current on-road self-driving fleets. And I really, other than lip service saying, oh, we've been talking to people in this community and, and accessibility is very important. We don't really see a whole lot of outward action that proves that companies like Waymo and Cruise and so on are actually thinking about this. In fact, what we're seeing is the opposite now. Uh, we're to a point now where in 2020 and in 2021, companies are pointing the finger everywhere but themselves. Another hot topic in the automotive space is electric vehicles. Lisa is a former electric vehicle owner, and in episode 37, she talks about why she went back to a traditional gas-powered vehicle. Often you would hear about range anxiety or charging anxiety as to reasons why someone wouldn't adopt an EV, but here's Lisa's number one reason. I enjoyed driving that car the most. It was very enjoyable. It was a lease car, though. So it didn't belong to me, but there was an option to buy it at the end. For me, there were a number of reasons why I returned to a traditional car. Um, it wasn't the cost in that case because smart cars are reasonably priced. It was more to do with, well, number one, batteries and technology and so on are moving at such a fast rate. Why would I spend so much money on something that would be obsolete in just a few years' time? We've also done many years of research looking at what consumers are doing inside the car. And one of the recent trends is the decline of radio in the car. And so uh, Diana, one of her first episodes, was uh, talking about, is car radio dead? And here is some of Diana's stories about why she likes radio, why she still has a fondness for radio. I guess that my best memory is, uh, is around the lines of what I explained before, remembering my grandma around the house, just um, listening to the radio all the time. And the thing is that when I was that little, I couldn't even comprehend what they were talking about. For me, it was freaking boring. <laughs> and And even though... I found it so charming at the same time that she was kind of like followed all the time with this noise. 
But radio for me has been always very important. For example, when I was in uni, I remember being in the library for long hours, studying and preparing for exams, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one day that I thought, wow, radio is actually very cool. If I could uh, give it a try at some point, I would definitely would do it because, you know, you're always listening to the radio and thinking that the radio presenters really have fun whilst they are doing their job. So mm-hmm. don't you think? No, I, I do. And, and you did that too, didn't you? Yes. I don't know if I had so much fun. I had fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did that. I was the radio presenter of, um, of the Saturday breakfast show of uh, community radio in the south of the UK. I love that. But I have to say it was challenging. I mean, mm. not just because I had to wake up at five in the morning, but also because I knew the radio was targeted for really young people, right? Whilst I was doing the show between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m., I knew that some nobody was listening at 7. <laughs> Just at that age, you would probably would be in bed. Yeah. Not listening to the radio, not <laughs> listening to this uh, random person on the radio. Diana and I also had a wide-ranging two-part interview with Dr. Brian Reamer from MIT. We covered a lot of topics around safety systems and self-driving cars and a lot of the research that they had been doing at MIT. Uh, but here is a clip of Dr. Brian Reamer uh, advocating for lifelong driver education. Have you ever overtaken a vehicle that you can perceive that the vehicle is doing funny things, not adhering to lane discipline, and then you say, well, yeah, he was on the phone. Sometimes I think these people should see themselves from the outside to really understand the impact of these distractions on their performance. Well, Diana, that's a good observation. I think that's a really important observation, especially in the teen driver area and the developing driver area, is that we do have the technologies now. And you know, we've done huge amounts of work in gradient licensure, slowly introducing people to the freedom of mobility globally. But imagine if you brought a data logger into a car. The car has all this technology now and said, you know what? To get a driver's license, we're going to log all this and you're going to experience some of what you're doing as a positive tool to motivate more effective behavior of a lifetime. And I think it's really important is that where we start is an indication of where we're going to be able to get people to and and looking to lifelong education here as a key piece. Many professions out there have continuing education requirements. You have to learn about stuff to grow as an individual, as an employee, as a contributor, as a member of society. Many countries out there, if not most at this point, you get your license at age 16, 17, or 18, and there is no education requirement beyond that. It's all learn as you go, do as you want, just don't go outside the lines too far. And I think we need to revisit lifelong driver education to support consumer understanding, consumer responsibility, and to move the system forward to really reduce the carnage on the road. Another area that we cover at SA is augmented and virtual reality. And several months back, Lisa sat down with Dr. Paul Tennant from the University of Nottingham for another two-part interview, talking about some of the research that he's done in virtual reality, particularly around when body movements and perception and that what your body is doing is deliberately misaligned with what they're seeing. So here is Paul Tennant talking about one of the 
research studies that they've done called the baby game. We built a project called the baby game, which we advertised as uh, essentially, you know, when we tell people about it, it's a game that will make you move around like a baby. (laughs) So what the baby game does, right, is you wear a VR headset with a pass-through camera. You put on a VR headset and it flips your view upside down and rotates it. Oh my Uh, goodness. So, so basically your viewpoint is, is upside down and, and, and flipped horizontally. And then all we do is ask you to just stack some baby toy blocks, you know, at least little foam blocks, just have to stack them into a little triangle. And it's so hard because you're like, your, your hand just doesn't go where you expect it to go. It's unbelievably difficult to do it. And you have to see these grown adults on their knees, on the ground, trying to stack some blocks <laughs> in the most basic of ways and knocking them over. And it's called the baby game because when you watch babies trying to, or very young children trying to do this, they haven't got particularly strong motor skills yet, right? They haven't developed the kind of proprioceptive skills that, that we have as adults uh, or, or, you know, older children have. And so doing basic tasks like stacking blocks is really difficult and they have to learn that they're learning proprioception. So what we do is we muck up, muck up your proprioception by flipping your view. And you essentially have to relearn to proprioceptive where your hands are. You have to you have to train yourself to work differently. And of course, it's only five minutes long, and everybody laughs. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's another fun project. Something you quickly notice about user experience work and user centered design is how those principles are really everywhere, all around us in the world, including the world of sport. So I sat down with Dr. Rob Gray from Arizona State University to talk about some of the work he's doing in human performance and how practice and coaching is changing and evolving to have more of a user-centered or athlete-centered design. Yeah, so I um, kind of my my background is in psychology training. And, um, you know, for many years I did research trying to understand kind of the visual perception of, of athletes, what they look for, what kind of information they use. And um, now I've, I've kind of spun it off into more uh, training skill acquisition side in, in recent years. So how can we take an athlete and design practice better to to help them develop their talent, help to help pitchers throw harder, you know, safely help, uh, you know, um, uh, athletes in soccer be more creative, make better decisions. So a lot of uh, practice design, coach education, and and with that, a lot of technology. Like a, um, just like in any field, I'm sure you guys talk about. There's a great imbalance between what we can measure and understanding of how to actually use it and what to do with it. In sports, that's you know more prevalent than ever now too. So, um, understanding how we can take the performance analysis and use it to make athletes better. It sounds like that this is kind of driving coaches to be more user-centered really to, to go UXy on you. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it is a, a lot of people are on board. There is some resistance, but <laughs> yeah, recognizing that there's not one size fits all solution. You got to let people be individuals. Uh, you got to let kind of people develop and, and yeah, I think there's a definitely more, uh, you know, athlete centered is a term we use in, mm-hmm. in coaching, which is the same basic principles as user centered. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it is a really big change. And I, I, you know, it's a it's a very different role and way to think about coaching for a lot of people. 
And so for our last clip in this year in review episode, uh, we wanted to end on a lighter note because I think everybody needs to end 2021 on a lighter note. And so we wanted to play uh, a clip from episode 65 where we talked about Zoom and video conferencing. And we all shared our stories about our most uh, embarrassing or funniest video conference or Zoom moments. And so here is Lisa with hers. I have an embarrassing one. Ooh, do tell. I actually was part of a conference and it was a virtual presentation and it was over Zoom. And I hadn't used Zoom for a conference, actually. Um, we'd used other platforms. So I'd actually used Zoom for personal things. And she was getting closer and closer to my presentation and I couldn't link up to the, the conference and I didn't understand why. So I'm messaging the organizer and saying, well, you know, what's what's happening? And she said, I, I can't find you. I, you know, in the list of Zoom participants, she couldn't find me to hook everything up, link it up. And then she said, wait, are you Lisa is awesome sauce? <laughs> I said, oh, no. <laughs> yes, I am Lisa is awesome sauce. <laughs> I think it had been my username or something I typed in a long time ago. So I, I had to quickly go into Zoom before I did my presentation and change it to my actual name. Uh, you didn't leave it for the talk? <laughs> it was up there in the, uh, the previous talks, you know, as one of the delegates, as one of the... Right. And I'm like, oh my God. And you could just see Lisa is awesome. <laughs> it didn't have my you, you should have left it and given the presentation as I'm like, ah. awesome. so i had to change it very quickly and oh, i was so embarrassed you know because obviously the organizer had seen that and i don't know how many of the, <laughs> the people that were attending it saw lisa is awesome and knew that was me so on behalf of lisa is awesome sauce and diana franganillo uh, we wanted to thank all of the guests that have graciously sat down and spent their time with us in interviews throughout the year. Wanted to, of course, thank Kevin Nolan and Harvey Cohen for their support of UX Soup and everybody else at SA. And of course, we wanted to thank you, the listeners who are tuning in every week to hear us talk about the latest in user experience. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. We appreciate your feedback, your emails. Uh, thank you very much for supporting us throughout the year. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. Of course, the podcast website ux-soup.com has all of our episodes. And there you can connect with each of us on LinkedIn. As always, UX Soup is sponsored by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this year. Safe, happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2022.